the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, faith leaders from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam examined the environmental crisis and how that also models a crisis within us of our faith and of our values. We continue and expand that conversation this week, looking at how solutions demand not only good science and careful application of technology, but also digging deeper into what we value and into what we believe. So we'd like to welcome back three wonderful guests who participated in the first part of this conversation last week. And as we suspected, there was going to be such a wealth of material that we'd need a second take of this. And I suspect we could do it for several others. So first of all, I'd like to uh, welcome Rabbi Olivier Ben Chaim uh, from Bet Olive Meditative Synagogue in Seattle, uh, Pastor Dave Brown from Northwest Interfaith Amigos, and Imam Jamal Rahman of Northwest Interfaith Amigos also. So thank you again for joining us uh, again this week so we can continue this conversation. Thank you, and thank you for your stewardship of this really special series a challenge to uh, Jeff. You've done a remarkable job uh, on keeping this on the air. Thank you. Well, one of the points that we touched on last week uh, was, does our disconnect with the environment, does our disconnect with the created world reflect a disconnect with who God or Allah really is? And so I'd like perhaps for us to begin there and whoever would like to tackle that first. You know, in the Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad said, do you love God? Then if you love God, love God's creation. Uh, it's not enough to just to say, oh Allah, I love you, I love you. What am I doing about it? You see, in the Quran, the human being, after having uh, uh, Adam and, he, and his wife, after being sent to earth, they asked for forgiveness. And because God is so compassionate, God forgave Adam and his wife and then appointed them as God's vice regent or ambassador ambassadress. And then additionally bestowed upon the human what is called the mantle of trust out of awareness and free will to enjoin the good and forbid the evil. So we have awesome potential awesome responsibilities. The Quran says the human being can rise higher than the angels and sink lower than the most savage of beasts. So if I am connected to God, then it is my duty, my loving responsibility to take care of God's creation. And I would say in the Christian household, the real the movement, I think, needs to be away from a supernatural theism, uh, God as a being in the heavens, to what um, my friend Marcus Borg called panentheism. Not pantheism, where the creation is holy, 
but panentheism where the sacred is in the creation and more than the creation. A mystery that is more than the creation, but present in the creation. And what this does is helps us not look for God up there, but look for God and experience the sacred down here. And I think part of that is a paradigm shift, even among some very well-meaning people that talk about the destruction of the creation in an economic way, saying, what, the, what is this going to do to human community? How is this going to affect the least of these? And you know, so how does creation impact humanity? Moving it to a conversation says there's something sacred and holy about the creation on its own. It's not simply a resource that we need to protect for human well-being. It's an expression of the sacred that we need to protect because it has its own its own glow, its own holiness, its own sacredness. And I think that's a real significant move in all of our traditions away from the creation as a resource to seeing the holiness of creation. In my tradition, Celtic Christianity is trying to do that. Um, and I think it's really an important move and not always an easy one because we get so caught up in our economic um, models and our prosperity models and focusing mainly on our comfort rather than on the sacredness of the world around us. And Olivier, I know you gave us some wonderful insights in last week's discussion. Could you uh, maybe uh, recapture some of that for us this week and uh, extend as you feel uh, appropriate beyond that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I mentioned last week that, um, you know, we have that, I have that sense that we have uh, radically otherized God. I think that's the word that I used. We, we've made God into that great other, um, that, that forever unreachable, um, you know, uh, transcendent um, being that, that, that we have to, uh, we can only pray to, to, you know, to, to influence as best we can so we can, so we can have the, the so our ego can be fed with the gifts and the and the blessings that we are we are seeking it's like we have made god into the you know a, a, a universal concierge really that's 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 sometimes how i think of it um really what has happened is that we have um we have in, in, we have reduced god to this only otherworldly uh, existence. We've vacuumed God out of creation, as if as if there could be a place devoid of the divine. And to me, it's it's always been a really a conundrum in my consciousness that we could think that that being that is supposed to be. I mean, so 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 many of us try to define what that is, but omnipresent, and you know, we we speak of God in those uh, those those terms, and yet we 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 seem to be living in a place where that is devoid of God, because God is only transcendent of it. And to me, it's like, what have we done? We've cut God off into into places that there there's no there's no way for in in my perspective. To, to have any place, any moment that where, where God is not. Because if I do that, then I shrink God and I can't have a God that is half a God. Either, it's, either, it's either one or the other. Um, 
And I want to, you know, in, in Jewish tradition, the, the, the understanding that, that Pastor Dave was, was mentioning, this panentheistic understanding, mostly comes from the mystical tradition. And the mystical tradition in, in Judaism, which is, which is, you know, not the one, you know, the the one few people on the fringes, but is a certain percentage of of the Jewish tradition, uh, holds the divine both as transcendent and as imminent, as as the the presence here and now, as much as the presence that transcends and out of which the nothingness, out of which all and everything, the, the everythingness of creation manifests, comes forth. And each of us and every moment and every being, organic or non-organic, is moment to moment an expression of that divine uh, manifestation. And, and in the Celtic tradition building, um, what, what the rabbi was just saying, they will be, we believe that there are certain places in the natural world uh, that um, that are called thin places that either because of a mix of expectation and the natural beauty and, and history that there are places where you are likely to see the veil between heaven and earth is very, very thin. Um, for uh, many, the Isle of Iona in Scotland is a thin place for some um, in, in the native tradition, some of the, the uh, mountains are thin places. And I think to have a spirituality in all of our religious traditions that encourage people to find out where is that thin place for you where the separation between heaven and earth is not quite so great. And, and in all this conversation about what we mean when we talk about the divine and God, I think of Micah 6, 8, um, the call to walk humbly. And that there are things we are not going to understand. And the only response is awe and humility. And the terrible arrogance we have today to think we can define and parse out everything about, about God, which I just don't think we can do. We just need sometimes to fall on our knees, literally or metaphorically, and be humbly grateful. And maybe I can encapsulate that in that quotation by Rumi, which I say all the time when Rumi says about God, about the invisible world, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. But one quick, one quick point I want to make uh, from the Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had a dream where God says, please convey this to humanity. What did God say? God said, I cannot be contained in the space of the earth. I cannot be contained in the space of the heavens, but I can be contained in the space of the pure, loving heart. And the Quran says, Allah is Zahir and Batin, outside of you and hidden inside of you. Another verse in the Quran says that Allah says, I am closer to you than your jugular vein. So where is God? God is outside of us, but also God is inside of us in the innermost chambers of our heart, which is why many environmentalists, uh, I'll take the example of a Buddhist environmentalist, 19th century, who reflects what Islamic mystics have said, other mystics have said from other traditions, taking care of the river, taking care 
of the river is not about the river. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. That recognition of the closeness of God, uh, of Allah, is sometimes difficult for people that are doing a great deal of environmental uh, activism work. Uh, they tend to fall prone to despair when they look at what's being done or what's not being done. Uh, within your faith traditions, how would you speak to that despair and how can people better uh, integrate that and move beyond that? There is a beautiful teaching um, that, ha that, that connects to um, giving tzedakah. So tzedakah is um, to, to make acts of charity in, um, in Jewish tradition. And especially in, in the moments before Shabbat begins on the Friday afternoon, um, we are all commended to uh to make a uh, to make a gift to give a gift of tzedakah tzedakah means charity but it also means justice which i i really i really love um it's an act of justice not just an act of charity and i think there's a there's a there's a difference in that um and and there is something really beautiful about being commended to give charity um because in, in most of the contexts in which we live um, charity is understood to be a, um, a gift of the heart. When your heart so moves you, then you will, uh, you, will, you, will, will, you will make a charitable gift, right? In Jewish tradition, that is not the case. We are commended. We don't have a choice. And the teaching behind that is that um, whether you feel so inclined this week, whether your heart moves you or not this week, those who are hungry and homeless don't really care, <laughs> to put it bluntly, right? They depend on that act of tzedakah to support, to, 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 to stay alive, you know, to, to, uh, to be able to support them, to sustain themselves. And so the, the answer to the despair, as far as our tradition is concerned, is answered through um, a series of obligations and practices that says, you just do the work. <laughs> it's about doing the work you have to do lishma for its own sake, for its own sake, regardless of. And that's how I think the Jewish people has survived through, you know, thousands of years of really um, would have could have pushed us into great despair. Um, but in fact, we, we, we stuck to the, the practices and the obligations we had to make the world a better place, to continue to offer uh, from our heart, from our tradition, from our soul, from our spirit, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of, of what has befallen us through history. And it's this drive to just, to, you know, I was, I was going to quote a, a marketing ploy, to just do it. Yeah. Right? You just do it because you're commanded to do it. It is our job not to complete the work, but we cannot not contribute to its completion at the same time. Mm -hmm. Taking a, a little different approach and, and on the topic of despair when it comes to uh, work to, to save the planet, um, one is to remember in the Christian household, Jesus as a human being didn't just put on a happy face 
and skate through his ministry. In him trying to make flesh the unconditional love of God, he had moments of sadness, moments of confusion. The night before the empire had him executed, you know, he wanted that to pass away from him. So Jesus experienced a sense of despair. Who are we to say that as in our work, we aren't going to feel that? We need the humility to discern the spiritual practices that help us get through our despair and do the work that we need to do. And without that humility, we become more frantic and in doing the work, we're more likely to do more othering of those who disagree with us because of our fatigue. So we need the humility to have spiritual practices to renew us and when we to work with us when we have despair. You know, uh, it's not surprising that the Quran has very similar injunctions or advice. Uh, this is particularly for the Prophet Muhammad when he was in total despair. And the, the revelation says, please, it says very tenderly, be patient, have faith. And there's a verse in the Quran that says, it is God who sends down the rain after humanity has lost all hope and unfolds his grace. Mm -hmm. So please be patient, uh, deepen your faith. It goes on to say that particularly in times of affliction, according to your capacity, please continue with your spiritual practices. And I repeat, according to your capacity, be conscious of God. Number two, it says, according to your capacity, be of service to God's creation. Be a lamp, a lifeboat, and a ladder. <laughs> and if you do, do those two things, those three things actually, you know, uh, have hope, build up faith, continue with your spiritual practices, uh, be a service to God's creation, then something will grow within you. Uh, and then you might get help in ways you cannot even imagine. Uh, in fact, Rumi says, maybe you can imagine in times of affliction, a stretcher comes from grace. But at least you will have within you a sense of what, uh, you know, people might call an inner peace, sakina, or uh, equanimity. But can I follow those steps and that'll take me out of despair and there's always hope an offshoot of despair uh that we see so much of expressed today uh is anger uh when things are not developing in a way we feel they should uh anger has been described as death with a breath uh, so i guess i'd ask each of you to sort of give us some ideas on what your traditions, what your personal experience and wisdom suggests might be effective ways to uh, counteract that anger, to enable us to deal more effectively with others, perhaps those that disagree with us. Uh, uh, anger, righteous anger is very beautiful. And it is very important that when we experience anger in a righteous way, we are careful not to allow it to fester because if it festers it can deteriorate degenerate into a need for revenge vengeance 
And so in fighting injustice, I might myself become unjust. In fighting extremism, I myself might become extreme. So what can I do? You know, uh, there's something I teach a whole class for three months called sacred holding, not to deny your difficult feelings because the Quran says all feelings are sacred. So anger is an energy, uh, the mystics call it a king over kings, but it needs to be bridled so it can serve. So to bridle it, to manage it, to tame it so it can serve, I have to give myself permission to go through a spiritual process we call sacred holding. At a moment of contemplation, I give myself permission to feel that feeling which was difficult that I try to avoid, deny. Number two, where in my body do I feel it? Because you see, how do I know I'm angry? I feel a sensation, a physical sensation in a part of my body. This is the process. Number three, with compassion for myself, with mercy for myself, can I just be present with that difficult feeling, that physical sensation? If it moves, move with it. No need to analyze it, no need to fix it, but a great need to lovingly be present with it. The process goes on. You can ask it questions. Do you have a message for me? Do you have a secret you want to share? Another question, how may I love you? And the last step is focusing on that and breathing through that and allowing that anger to become softened and become integrated. What happens is not only does the anger soften, it transforms into an inner vitality. I can be of greater use in my activism. And the Prophet Muhammad had some other uh, suggestions. He said, you know, when you're angry, lower your voice. Remember to lower your voice. Remember, as Rumi says, it is rain that grows flowers, not thunder. Number two, the Prophet Muhammad said, use the elements of nature, splash your face with water because you're experiencing the fire of Satan. This fire, this water will extinguish that. Splash yourself with water. Number three, lie down on nature, on Mother Earth. This will soften you. So basically, I'm asked to, through spiritual practices, soften my anger and kiss the demons and dragons within me. Because as Carl Jung said, it is only when you kiss the demons and dragons within you, that is how they turn into a prince or princess. Thank you, Brother Jamal. I, I'm reminded of Jesus's teachings of unconditional love and uh, that the image of God, there's something sacred about each person. So part of my very real challenge in a practical way is when I'm angry to try to move to be righteously angry at a condition rather than to demonize a person and be angry at the person and deny their humanity and that they're made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And I think spiritually that's a key practice and can be a very difficult practice, at least uh, for this pastor. Sometimes it's really hard to see the image of God in some of the people that are doing some things to our world right now. 
are there any exercises as we look for ways and there have been allusions to this uh are there ways that we can get that sustaining connection with nature any exercises or uh, uh, either visually or physically that you recommend to people that is so critical we live in a world that is open 24 7 and i think we uh, are missing the sacred because it is 24 7. we need to we need to reclaim that sabbath space for ourselves whether it is friday saturday sunday whatever your day is it doesn't matter but to really disconnect to unplug to really dive in a different aspect of who we are <laughs> So sending light and love, asking for forgiveness, that's key. And the other thing I want to say is every hour, every day, every week, every month, really work on all the spiritual practices that raises my consciousness, that helps me evolve into the fullness of my being, which really means, can I tame my ego? Can I transform it? from a commanding master into a personal assistant. Well, I would thank each of you for opening windows for a very troubling uh, contemporary problem, uh, but one that's been in the making for such a long time and for uh, generating so much light on this. Uh, thank you each so much for joining us. And uh, it struck me as we were talking that there were other topics that suggested themselves. So I hope each of you will join us again uh, sometime soon for this program. We'd love to. Love and thank it. you so much. Thank, thank you so much. And thank you each of you for joining us on uh, this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.